We're continuing our series in Joshua today. Um, we, uh, we got to clean up a little bit of some of the stuff from last week. It's a very odd text. Remember last week we talked about genocide, of all things, uh, for Father's Day, because that's what the Bible has. Uh, and, and, but we saw, though, we saw, though, that um, there was some really valuable uh, insights into what fatherhood should be like because of the Joshua text. And I think we're going to see a similar thing today as we uh, exp- explore a little bit about what sin is. Uh, sin's not a super popular topic in churches anymore because uh, it makes people feel bad. Uh, but we are going to have to hit it because it's there. So let's, um, let's, let's read the text together and then uh, we'll work it through. Just so you remember, last week the Israelites, they took the, the city of Jericho. They burned it to the ground. They, uh, they totally destroyed everything. Um, but then this happens. The Israelites broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Remember last week, the devoted things, things made sacred by their destruction. Things that were so contaminated and evil, they had to be destroyed. Um, and, and, but the Israelites, they, they, they broke faith. Ahan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the Israelites. We're going to find out later, not in, in this text, uh, that he, I think he found like a gold brick or something like that. And he buried it in the ground so that he could become rich. When that was supposed to be either burned or dedicated to the treasury of the Lord, which would become the temple. So he took some stuff for himself. But then what happens? Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So they first they spied out Jericho. Uh, remember Rahab the prostitute helped them. Now they're going to sp- uh, spy out this much smaller city, uh, really more of a town, Ai. Then they returned to Joshua and said to him, not all the people need go up. About two or 3,000 guys should go up and attack. That's all we need. Since they're so few, don't, don't make the whole people toil up there. Let's not work. So- remember how easy Jericho was? Let's uh, do the same thing. God's going to take care of it. We're going to wipe him out. It'll be great. So about 3,000 of the people went up there, and they fled before the men of Ai. What? What happened? The men of Ai killed about 36 of them, chasing them from outside the gate as far as Shebarim, and killing them on the slope. The hearts of the people melted and turned to water. What happened? Uh, I skipped a few verses where Joshua was like, God, what, what, what happened? This should have been easy stuff. We, we, this is what, what, what went on. And God responds. Yahweh says to Joshua, stand up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I imposed on them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They've acted deceitfully. And they have put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the Israelites are unable to stand before their enemies. Why? Because they don't have me. They turn their backs to their enemies because they have become a thing devoted for destruction themselves. I'm not going to be with you anymore unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Very odd text. Very strange. Um, Let's let's, let's take a a closer look at it. Uh, They took some of the devoted things. The anger of the Lord burned against them. Why was this so important? What is so, what's such a big deal about them not uh, taking this stuff? Well, uh, let's look. This is from last week's text um, where God explains it. God says this. Uh, don't take any of this devoted stuff, the stuff that we're going to burn, uh, so as you don't covet and take any of the devoted things, make the camp of Israel an object for destruction. I don't want you to be focused on getting stuff. Okay, that's, that's the problem. Did you know that up until the middle of the 1800s, 
there was only one army on the face in all of history that had a, a, a prohibition against looting. And that was this army, the, the, is, is the, the Jews, as they were, or the Israelites, as they were taking the land. Every other army, all the way up until the 1800s, in all of human history, the purpose, or like one of the reasons you became, uh, you, you joined the military, because you could get rich. You know, if you kill the right guy, and that guy's carrying the right stuff, and you take it, you could, you could retire. Uh, yeah, I have here, one, one of the things that became uh, popular in World War II is Souvenirs. Uh, you may know, and this also became popular in the Civil War. Um, basically, after the uh, after the prohibition on looting in the West, uh, the the it was very rare for soldiers to take anything. So some sometimes uh, soldiers would would just take a cup of sand from all the different uh, battles and places they'd been as a souvenir. In fact, uh, what what ended up happening in World War II uh, was that they found that there were times where the the Allies would push forward and then they would get pushed back. And when they'd pushed forward because they weren't allowed to loot, they weren't allowed to take anything, they left weapons of war with the dead. And then they found that when they got pushed back, the Nazis would take those things back and rearm other troops. And so Allied Command said, well, in order to help prevent this, we're going to allow our soldiers to take uh, souvenirs from the battlefield, but only weapons of war. And so it became very popular amongst American troops uh, in World War II to possess uh, knives, guns, anything that could be used to forward the, the, the enemy, they would take it and they got these like, little boxes that had to be so big and, and they would send it home. This is from the collection of a uh, 101st Airborne uh, trooper who landed at Normandy. He, he got this stuff and he sent it home. And uh, now I think it's his uh, grandson, maybe great-grandson, has, uh, has donated them to a museum. Why is this important? It's important because God is trying to establish something. God hates war. God hates violence. God sometimes uses it, but that's not God's heart. God's heart is mercy and love. And so God does not want his people to be incentivized to violence. Notice, if you're in combat and there's somebody who's wounded or there's somebody that you've taken captured, prisoner, well, if you're, you can't loot someone who's alive. There's actually incentive to kill people you've captured so that you can take their stuff. God wants to make that anathema. He wants to, and so it really up until the you know, 19th century, that's what people did. And in the 19th century, the West began to realize God was right. We need to disincentivize violence with a reason to go to war. That's the first thing in your note sheets. God outlaws looting because God doesn't want Israel, or really us, to have an incentive to go to war. But it's more than that. There's more than that. So check this out. Um, they've transgressed my covenant I imposed on them. Uh, remember, uh, you may not know this, but covenant really, uh, it's, it's more like marriage. Uh, that's, that's sort of the, the idea behind the covenant, that God has married Israel. And as a result, Israel needs to follow God's ways. They turn their backs on their enemies because they have become a thing devoted for destruction themselves. There's something about the stuff that they took that contaminates or makes Israel uh, worthy of being destroyed. How odd is that? We in the West in the 21st century, we tend to think of things as things, right? Things are just things. We don't, uh, it's just stuff. There's nothing 
more about it than what it is. There's nothing, there's nothing special about it. Like someone could take one thing from another person and there, there shouldn't be anything that, other than you've just got the thing. Someone gives you a sword, you've gotten a sword. Someone gives you a piece of paper, you've received a piece of paper. There's nothing special about it. Now that's, that's totally true, except that in my experience it's not. And so I, want, I, I, I have um, a clip here. It's been you know, several months since we've talked about the Lord of the Rings, so it's time. Um, so there, this is a short clip. This is from the first movie, Fellowship of the Ring. And it's when um, it does have a little bit of a jump scare. So it's the one where Bilbo gets kind of weird for a second. So be ready for that. But I want you to pay attention to the, the, the importance of things in this text. And, and, and importance in a way that we're not used to. Old sword. Sting. Yeah, take it, take it. It's so light. Yes, yeah. Made by the elves, you know. The blade glows blue when orcs are close. And it's times like that, my lad, when you have to be extra careful. Here's a pretty thing. <laughs> Mithril. As light as a feather. And as hard as dragon scales. Let me see you put it on. Come on. Oh. My old ring. I should very much like to hold it again. I'm sorry I brought this upon you, my boy. I'm sorry that you must carry this burden. I'm sorry for cool that, you know, Bilbo gives him, gives Frodo his sword. It's a magical sword. It can detect orcs. Um, But beyond that, the sword has a long history of being a a force for good. Uh, It has a long history of of being held down, uh, passed down from from elves, I think, originally maybe, and then Bilbo, and now to Frodo, to to be a force for good, to be a, a, a beacon of hope against the forces of darkness. Similarly, the, uh, the, the mithril vest that he gives him, it's not just that it's an amazing, you know, defensive armor, and it is, and we see that in the movie, but there's something more to it. It's that, that Bilbo himself has a long history of, of adventuring and, and trying to bring about good things and, and, one of the, and bring about the good, and one of the things that's helped him with that is this vest, and so now he's passing it on to Frodo. The ring, of course, is evil. Bilbo, um, 
had the ring for many years, then gave it to Frodo because the ring has power, has some kind of magical power that, that we never understand exactly how it works, but, but it has something about it that's more than just a ring. And so when Bilbo sees uh, Frodo with that ring, the, the pull of the ring, its history, its power, it grabs onto Bilbo, and Bilbo like, wants it back. The point is, is that in, in the ancient world and in the Bible and in and, and, and Lord of the Rings, and I think in reality, uh, things matter. And they matter uh, more than, than, than we might think. When, when something has a history and it has power, it, uh, it, when it passes to us, it, that, that's meaningful. It, it's something more than just getting something. So, for example, Erin's uh, ring, her, her wedding ring, has a bunch of diamonds that uh, are, are from my grand, grandmother and great-grandmother. Now, they're not the best diamonds in the world. Um, a lot of you probably have much bigger or shinier or whatever diamonds. But these diamonds come from my family. And so when Aaron received that ring, it was symbolic. The, the, the stuff, the thing, the ring meant more than just, oh, these are pretty diamonds. It meant now I'm a part of this legacy, the Bennett legacy. And likewise, I'm now a part of the Egertson legacy. There's something, there's a past and a power that travels through things that, that we have to hold So God prohibits people from stealing and looting precisely because God understands that there's more to things than just things. The history of a thing, the power of a thing, it can can invite us to be a part of a legacy of goodness and, 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 and beauty. It can also invite us to be a part of a legacy of evil. That's the second thing in your note sheets. God outlaws looting because things have history and power. They can control us. So interesting how some things have a glamour. You know, some people are into cars. And the cars just, I can't get over the, the Bronco, man, the new Bronco. It's, that's a cool car. Not usually into cars, but the thing's pretty sweet. And there's a glamour to it, a shine. It's inviting, it has history, it has power. It brings back the legacy of the Bronco from the 80s or whatever, and yet brings it into the new age. And so now that thing can, can possess us just as much as we can possess it. But why does this matter so much? Why does God care if just one dude grabs a gold brick? What difference does it make? Look, look, at, look at what uh, happens, right? So this guy, Achan, son of Zabdi or Zabdi or Zara, somebody, takes a brick, gold brick, buries it in the ground. In a couple of days, the Israelites see a small little village. They send 3,000 people. They get their butts kicked. All we need is two or 3,000. We don't need to make everybody work so hard. What happens then? Next, te- next slide. The men of Ai killed 36, chasing them from outside the gate as far as Sherebim, killing them on the slope. See, uh, Akan, he got away with it. Did you notice that? He got away with it. He, he, he snagged a thing. He wasn't supposed to. He was told not to, but he does it. He's, he snags it. He buries it in the ground. He gets away with it. 36 of his friends, though, die. 
And it's hard to see like a direct line of causation, right? What does burying a gold brick have to do with 36 guys getting killed in battle? I mean, the, the, the text kind of gives us the sense that God's not with them, but doesn't tell us what that means. Maybe that means they're stronger when God's with them. Maybe it means that God uh, helps in, like, in the little actions of the battle. It's difficult to say, but it's, there's certainly no clear connection between taking a gold brick and 36 guys getting killed. The reason this is important is because the Bible believes that sin has a butterfly effect. Um, you, may have, you may have heard the butterfly. There was a movie that was made about it. But the butterfly effect is the, you know, the idea that a butterfly flaps its wings in California and there's a tsunami in Japan. Some, somehow there's a, this, this very odd and impenetrable and imperceptible connection between this action, this thing over here, and that thing over there. And it's impossible for us to understand how it works. All we can tell is that, that this action has ripple effects that are, that are impossible or difficult for us to, to see. Now, sin also has direct effects, obviously, if you, you know, drink and you get in the car and you drive and you kill somebody, that person's gone. But there's also an element of sin that is, you just don't know the impact it's having. You have no idea. And that's what makes it so dangerous. You might think, oh, I'm do- all I'm doing is just getting this gold brick for my family because, you know, we need to be provided for. You're thinking that, and you have no idea that that action is going to cause the death of 36 people that you called friends. The next thing in your note sheet, sin is so dangerous because it has a butterfly effect. We never know the extent to which it will distort the world around us. That's why, for most of us, we think what we're doing, well, I just, I just, you know, I just need uh, to check out this, this pornography. No one's going to know. You know. I just need to lie about this one thing so that I can get out of this. No one's going to know. But there's something about sin that's a power. There's something about it that's beyond what we understand, and it, and it creeps, and it ripples, and it affects in ways that we may never be aware of. And so we might think we're getting away with it when 36 of our friends die. So what do we do with this? What, 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 what can we do? If, 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 that's, if that's real, if that's true, if the Bible's right about sin, then what can we do? The first thing I think that we need to do is we need to know what sin is. Most of us think that we know what sin is. We think sin is when we choose to do something wrong. And that is true, that, but that is a subset of sin. Okay? Uh, sin is much larger than that. I have a picture here of a lady who uh, hit the bullseye in an axe throwing contest, doing better than every single man in this congregation last week. <laughs> I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't watching. Did anyone get a bullseye? I, I saw Kira, like, stick it a few times. But yeah, it was pretty, it's pretty sad. This lady is way better at it. What's that? Did you get it? No, from there I got it last year. You did get it last year. All right. Doug, Doug, I, I, I practiced, and then I just realized axe throwing is not for me. The word sin, uh, it just, it literally means, um, it's the literal Hebrew word for um, archery when you miss the bullseye. It's, that's all it is. It's just... Um, 
You're sitting there, and you fire, and there's a bullseye, and you're just a little bit off. That's sin, or a lot of, a lot of off, or you, know, you send it over to Capo High School. Sometimes watching that axe throwing thing, we've got to change that for next year because it's super dangerous. There was one time someone was driving like a nice car right by because they were like, I don't want to be a part of this. And somebody threw the axe. It was bouncing. I was like, oh, my gosh. Please don't pop the tire or kill a child. So we got to figure that out for next year. But the, the point is you can be all the way over there, that's sin. You can be there, that's sin. You can be there, that's sin. And moreover, it's not just stuff that we do. It's anything in the created, in, in the world that isn't the way God envisions the world to be. Man, this is key. It's not just you being like, oh, I should or shouldn't do this. It's beyond that. It's, it's anything about the world that's distorted from God's vision. And so this can be, like, you might encounter something in the world, like a, a, I don't know, a rabid dog or something like that. That's sin. Dogs aren't supposed to be like that. Dogs are supposed to be loving, kind, gentle creatures. That's what a dog was designed for. And if a dog isn't that, that's sin. That's why cats are evil. Because there's nothing good about them. They have no purpose except to be exterminated. We have to understand that, that what we're dealing with here is more than just our choices. It's, it's, it's God has a vision of the world. What does Jesus say? He says, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Uh, there's an idea that the world is badly distorted from what God's vision of it should be, and that's what sin is. And so our job is to not contribute to that, to know it, to recognize it, to stop these ripples that are distorting, at least, at least for here, like, here, Tom, try to be holy, man. Try to stop being, you know, producing this in the world. That's the first thing. Know what sin is. Recognize it's more than just you making a bad choice. But if you are making a bad choice, what do you, what's the first step? Confess. Repent. That's the next thing, next slide. Confess and Repent. One of the crazy things about sin is that when we get into it, when we habituate it, it's, it's very difficult to stop. It, it consumes and it, it keeps us going. We keep going back to it. We want, want more and more. The, the first step is confess and repent. Uh, 1 John 1, nine. what does it say? Uh, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Get a new start right now. Acknowledge that you're complicit in these systems. Acknowledge that you're part of the ripple effect, the distortion, and say, I gotta put a stop to it. And I know that if I do, if I say, Jesus, forgive me, he will. And not only is he gonna forgive you, he's also gonna clean out your heart so that you stop making these ripples. There's one thing left, though. A lot of us, uh, we want to stop there. We want to be like, ah, yes. Okay, God, I'm back. Thank you. But just because you've stopped the ripples doesn't mean that they haven't had these effects. Some of them you'll recognize. Some of them you won't. You have no idea. But, some, but, but our actions and our distortion and the distortion of the world from God's vision, it produces things that are messed up. 
And one of the things that God called Israel to do, the whole point of going into the land was to not just, you know, stop the ripple effects. It was to stop the ripple effects of the Canaanites, of the evil that was there. It was to, it was to give the, the land a clean sweep, to, to start over, to refresh it, to make it the way that God wanted it to be. And so when Israel disobeys, even just a one brick disobey, what they're really doing is they're saying, God, we're not going to stop the ripples. We've been called to transform this land, but we're going to keep it the same. I don't know if you know the story of the secret garden. This is one of my, one of my dad's favorite movies uh, the, and book and uh, even a, a play. In fact, at his, uh, his memorial service, we played one of the songs from the musical. The story of the secret garden is this girl, uh, she, she gets shipped off to her uncle's estate. She's British. Her parents die in India, and they ship her off to a, a, a distant uncle. And when she gets there, it's a, it's a bad deal. He's got a disabled son who can't walk. He's um, confined to a wheelchair. And uh, the, the little girl, she discovers this garden. Uh, it's, it's, it's in the uh, hedge maze, and there's no key, but she, like, breaks in, or she gets the key. I don't remember. But she goes in there, and she realizes no one has tended this garden in decades. It just looks like garbage. Um, there's weeds everywhere. There's thorns and thistles. You can see that at one time it might have been a beautiful thing, but, but the, all the, the, the paths have been overgrown, and the seats and chairs um, are in, you can't see them anymore because of the bougainvillea. And she, and, and she looks at it, and she's like, I want to make this beautiful again. So she asks her rich uncle, can, can I just have some seeds and some... And she goes and she begins to, to, to roll back the vines, to roll back the weeds. She pulls and, she, and then where, where, where there's bald spots, she adds water. And as she's doing this, um, one of the, her friends on the estate who works there and her disabled cousin, they, they begin to, to join her. And over the course of time, they, they make the garden lovely. They find out that it's the dis- disabled boy's mother's garden. It was her garden. And when she died, the garden fell into disrepair. And so Colin, the disabled boy, begins to gain strength in his back and his legs as he's working on the garden, as he's committing himself to this vision the girl has, the little girl's vision of what this, this, this place could be. And as he engages and as he participates in it, his leg strengthens, his back strengthens. And even though no doctor believes it's possible, he, he walks again. He begins strong. He can run. In a lot of ways, the world we live in is God's secret garden. It's a place that has been neglected and distorted and damaged. Some of it's the created order, like an actual garden. Most of it, though, is human hearts and souls. And if we're honest about it, a lot of the damage, a lot of the distortion comes from what we've done. And so like um, Colin, the boy who can't walk, we, we are sent into this garden, and, and God says, first I want you to clean yourself up, but then, then I want you to participate in making this place beautiful again. And what you'll find is that as you do that in faith, 
those parts of you that are damaged, that are distorted, not only are they going to heal, but you're going to be healing everything around you. And, and just as there's a ripple effect with sin, where we can't see you know, all the, the ways that sin affects and distorts things, there's also a ripple effect in righteousness. We can't see all the time what our, what our work does, what God blesses it to do, but we can trust that it is doing those things. And as we live this life, this Christian life, we make a small part of God's secret garden grow again. And so just as we sang uh, holy, holy, holy earlier, God is calling Coast Bible Church, calling all of us to the next level of holiness, to stop the ripples of sin. But then God's also calling us to take that next step to try to restore and change and transform those things that are distorted so that we can be healed gardeners in his garden. Gracious God and Father, we do confess that we are people plagued by sin, that we are part of the distorting of your vision for how this world is. But God, we confess that you have provided hope, that you've provided redemption in your Son, that there's no depth that we can go to, no darkness we can participate, that you can't forgive and heal. And so, God, for those of us who are racked by guilt right now, we confess to you our darkness. You know it. We admit it. We want to turn away from it. God, some of us come to you knowing that, um, that we're right, that we're, we, we, that we're in, your, in, in Christ, that we're right, that we're living out holy lives. But, God, we haven't been tending the garden. We haven't been reversing the ripple effects, the distortion of sin. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes to see the part of, of, of your garden that, that you want us to transform and change. Give us the strength and power to do it. And may we do it the way Jesus did it, in self-giving love. God, make your garden beautiful in our lives. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.